I, I want to say first what a blessing it is to, to be able to, to do this. And I thought Nathan might not have made it back into town, but here he is. Let me say something about your pastor. Um, I've lived a nomadic life the past 20, well, I've been in the ministry since 1991 as a pastor, so I've, I've lived a nomadic life. Um, and I've been in a lot of churches, and I've sat under a lot of preachers. And I hope our congregation realizes what a blessing we have for Pastor Nathan, a great blessing from God. And I have many reasons to say that, not least of which is when Nathan asked me to preach today, he said, listen, you can preach a passage you want, or you could take Genesis 22, which is the next in line. Now, folks, Genesis 22, I mean, all of Genesis is like the Himalayas, right? There are many peaks, but in my opinion, Genesis 22 is Mount Everest. And I think you'll see why. And I hope I get us there to, so you can agree with me today on that. But I feel like I've gone to Nathan's birthday party. His cake is the book of Genesis. And he's been rightly dividing it to us over these several months. And he's come to that part of the cake that has that beautiful frosting rose on it. And I love frosting. I love frosting more than I love cake. And he's cut that slice of cake. And he's the birthday boy. And he slid that across the table to me. Now, I don't know, and I can't really think of a more poignant example of a servant of God who's willing to, to really offer up prime scripture for a visiting pastor. Thanks be unto God. What a gift he and his family are. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And we humbly now come with the holy word of God before us. And so I pray, Lord, that you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. So we come to Genesis 22, and to be honest, you may see a portrayal of God that might make you think that you don't know him as well as you do. Let's look at the scripture together. What I want to do here is, is have a section where we go through the text, and then at the end... I want to give you three, hopefully, practical takeaways that we can look at together. So we're going to go verse by verse. So in, and by the way, I'm using the New King James Version because you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And um, so bear with me. So Genesis chapter, one, uh, chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. So you have to ask after what things? Well, just visit the chapter previous, chapter 21, and you see that in chapter 21, Abraham, though he is a man of great faith, has hedged on his faith, and in order to kind of have a contingency plan in place, he has lied to Abimelech about his wife Sarah, saying that's his sister. Um, in other words, he was wavering in his faith. Now, folks, listen, 
God does not assume our faith. He will test it. He will see and he will let us see if it's truly all that that we think that it is. And this is the test that God gave to Abraham, verse 2. And then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, this language should look kind of familiar to you who've been in church for a while. Your only son, whom you love. We'll get to that. So he sends him to the land of Moriah, and we will come later to find out that Mount Moriah has quite a bit of significance in the history of redemption. You think that it was uh, David who after he made a census of his military to see how many fighting men he had, because David at that point in his life was struggling in his faith, and he was placing his hope in their military and not in the God of Scripture. And he numbered the men, and God punished him for that. And part of that punishment involved a plague, that was going to wipe out many people in Israel. And there's that scene where David's at Mount Moriah and the sword of God's judgment is dropping. And so David speedily makes arrangements, purchases that land there, that threshing floor. And there the plague was stopped. The judgment of God was stopped right there on Mount Moriah. You also will remember that it was on that mount it's called the Temple Mount today in Jerusalem, that God instructed Solomon to build a temple. And there sacrifices were made for sin. Because this God you and I say we know and love and how great he is, indeed, he is a holy God if he's anything. And you must approach him as such. And so there was a system involved that you had to approach this God, and Solomon built his temple there. But there was also a much more significant uh, attribute of that Mount Moriah, and it was really a little outcrop of that mountain called Golgotha, Mount Calvary, where the judgment of God fell in its harshest form upon his only son, the son whom he loved. Mount Moriah is important. Keep that in mind as we go through here. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering. Think about that for a second. And he arose and went to the place which God had told him. Now, immediately, skeptics of the Bible and even some Christians struggle with this, with the commandment. For Abraham to kill his son. How could a just God do that? That's the question. Well, it's interesting that Abraham never questioned it. Matter of fact, he showed an eagerness and alacrity. He got up early. He saddled his donkey. He got it moving out. He split the wood. Reminds me of an old song not too long ago, I guess. It was entitled, He Grew the Tree. And it says, God grew the tree that he knew would be used to make an old rugged cross. We see God's providence. We see Abraham here submitting to what he knew was going to be an awful reality. 
And then verse 4 says, On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Three-day trip. I lived in San Antonio about 10 years ago, and uh, my father was in failing health back in South Carolina, and we, we were literally packed up and going out the door when my brother called. He said, it's bad news. He said, Dad's passed away. I got to tell you, that was the longest drive of my life because I was driving to a funeral and I was grieving and I had three little girls in the back seat and they were sad too and I couldn't, actually, I couldn't lose it in front of them, right? It was tough. I can't imagine what Abraham was thinking. It's one thing to hear from God, your son must die. It's quite another to hear that you have to do it. But Abraham doesn't act like he's going to a funeral, does he? He acts like he's going to a worship service. He says, I will. No, he didn't say I will. He said, we will come back to you. How could he say that? Really, Abraham, are you some sort of Pollyanna? Are you disobtuse? Are you not living in reality? How could he say that? I'll show you how I could say that. Now keep your finger here and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. By the way, what's the best commentary on the Bible? The Bible, that's right. And here we got the best commentary on what, Abraham, what was going through Abraham's mind. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17. Listen, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. In Abraham's mind, yes, even if I do go through with this and my son is dead, yet I know he is the son of promise and God can raise him from the dead if need be. That's faith, folks. That's what he was, a man of great faith. Now, look at verse 6. This, the plot thickens. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his son, on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. We don't know how old Isaac was here. Um, rabbinic tradition and some scholarship puts his age anywhere between 5 and 37 years of age. But we do have to uh, deduce that he was at least old enough to carry a load of wood sufficient for a burnt offering for himself. So perhaps a, a young teenager, we don't know. But we do know this. He was old enough to know 
that there was no worship of this holy God without a spotless lamb. And then we see Abraham make what is undoubtedly one of the most profound statements in redemptive history as Abraham assures him, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb. That is the sum and substance of what we believe as Christians. What God has done there and what God is doing through this this story, he's setting us up for the broader narrative of what God did through Jesus Christ. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, so let's continue. It says, uh, so the two of them went together. In verse 9, then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. The Bible says we are spectacles unto angels, and I don't want to add to the text what it doesn't say, but I just in my mind's eye imagine all of the host of, of angels in heaven leaning over the edge, looking down and seeing if this, what this man of God was going to do. The scripture says the just, the righteous, the truly righteous will live by his faith, not by sight. And then at the last second, verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. It's interesting that the, the repetition of the name, Abraham, Abraham. You see this throughout the scripture. It is, uh, it's, a, it's a Hebrew idiom to call the name twice to express great love and affection. Remember when God called young Samuel in the temple. And Eli said, when God calls, answer him. And the last time God called Samuel, he said what? Samuel, Samuel. Establishing that intimate relationship. Then we remember when David's son Absalom was killed in battle. And they brought him the news. And David, you recall, cried out, oh, Absalom, Absalom. If only I had died in your place. Then, of course, the ultimate expression of this Hebrew way of speaking intimacy was when our Lord himself was suspended between heaven and earth. And he looked up to heaven and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Folks, God loved Abraham. And Abraham passed the test because he loved God. God says, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And now in verse 13, the scripture says, And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Hallelujah. Of course there was. I don't know if you've ever experienced this in your life, when you're waiting on God to do something. But folks, God's never late. The other side of that is God's never early. You've got to wait. But he didn't have to wait too long because there God had done what Abraham said he would do. God provided the lamb for the sacrifice. 
So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. God provided the sacrifice. Why? Because only the sacrifice that God provides could ever be acceptable. We find here what's translated, the Lord will provide. Perhaps in your Bible, it's, it's got hyphens between the words. It's indicating, um, it's a translation of two words in the Hebrew that you've probably heard as well. We've put it in some of our songs from time to time. It's Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Now, typically in modern usage, we refer to that redemptive name of God to demonstrate that God always meets the needs of his people. But technically and specifically speaking, that is not the usage of this name of God. This is the only time, by the way, it ever appears in the Bible. But notice the context. It's not material provision God gives. It's redemptive provision that God makes for his people. And oh, by the way, that redemption is provided unilaterally. That is to say that the Abrahamic covenant that we saw in Genesis 15 is not a partnership between Abraham and God. Um, Genesis 15, scholars tell us, is in the language of a suzerainty treaty. Suzerainty treaties were very common between nations back in those days. And basically, it was a relationship between a dominant power and a very minor power. And, and basically, the treaty says, the dominant power says, we will not destroy you, but you will pay taxes to us. You will do this. That's the treaty. Again, it was not an agreement between equal parties. It was agreement between kings and vassals. And, and even if you look at Genesis 15, remember this, as Nathan preached this, remember when Abraham split the animals and darkness fell? And the Bible did not say that Abraham and God walked hand in hand through those animals to signify the ratification of that treaty. No, no, no. It said that God moved through the middle of those animals as a smoking oven and a burning torch by himself. Where was Abraham? Abraham was there, but he was curled up in horror, the Bible says, at what he was observing. Friends, listen, God alone provides redemption. Abraham's and yours and mine. It's found in no one else. It's not in us. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not a, an enterprise. It's what Jonah figured out when he's being digested by the great fish in Jonah 2.9. Salvation is of the Lord. Verse 15. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And I believe, let me stop here, I believe this is a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. This is, when you see angel of the Lord in that fashion, speaking when the first person, like the voice of God, I really don't know how else you could say it, but it, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, which is very ironic, is it not? Because the very one who would be the sacrifice for the sins of God's people is now the one calling out 
as we say in the military, index, stop, knock it off. The stay of execution, do not kill him. The Lord Jesus himself. And then verse 16, the angel of the Lord continues. He says, by myself, I have sworn. Again, the suzerainty treaty, by myself. I don't need you to swear to it, Abraham. I've sworn. Scripture says, because God could swear by none greater than himself, he swore by himself. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. So Abraham turned to his young men, just like he said, by the way. And they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. This was God's doing. Abraham was not righteous because he obeyed God. Abraham obeyed God because he was righteous, because God made him righteous. So that is the exegesis of the text. Now let's talk some practical applications, some key doctrines here I think are very important. The first one is this, and by the way, these are on your notes page in your bulletin. I, did, I have mistakenly put the last two out of order, so just transpose those last two. But the first one is this. The truly righteous are truly surrendered to the sovereignty of God. You know, it's human nature to be a control freak, right? Some of us might, might classify ourselves as control freaks, but it's really in all of our nature, Yes. I've read an interesting article in the New Yorker magazine several years ago where a man in New York City got stuck on an elevator in one of these high rises and he got stuck between floors and he couldn't get it unstuck and it was late in the night and the phone didn't work and so he was stuck in that elevator all night and was finally rescued the next day. So he was traumatized by that, right? He wrote an article about it, and he did some research. And what he discovered in that was a couple of things. One, people are really afraid of being on elevators. And the reason for that, what would you think the reason for that would be? Because you don't have control anymore. However, unbeknownst to the elevator traveling public, manufacturers, in order to cut some corners, because we know sometimes manufacturers cut corners, they unhooked the unnecessary buttons that we are used to in an elevator control panel. One of the buttons they unhooked was the door close button. So the chances are, if you get on an elevator today and you push that door close button because you like to be in control, right? It's not doing anything. You think it's doing something, but it's closing at its own pace. Why leave the button in there? To give comfort to the people who don't like to be on elevators because they don't like not to have control over things. Have you ever noticed, and this is showing my age, but those of you who are old enough, have you ever noticed that elevator music's pretty much gone? You know why they took elevator music out of elevators? Because it reminded people that they were on an elevator. It made people nervous. I want to be in control. Friends, 
the God of Genesis 22 is, is in control. And you are not. Now, what is God's sovereignty? We toss that word around, and I happen to know that there are some preachers who throw it around, and they really don't follow what the Scripture teaches about it. So let's let the Bible, again, what's the best commentary on the Bible? The Bible. Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3 says that our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Or you can go to Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar thought he was all that. He thought he was in control. He thought he actually brought about all the success in his life, and then God struck him stupid, and he went out into the field, and he ate grass like a cow for seven years. And when God finally brought him to his senses, Nebuchadnezzar makes this remark in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, which is one of the preeminent definitions of the sovereignty of God right out of the Scripture. He said, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. God does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And I think most of us can accept that because, hey, how great is our God? But what about when the sovereignty of God brings tragedy in your life? How do you deal with that? I like what R.C. Sproul, he wryly observed one time. He said, you know, Romans 8.28 is undoubtedly Undoubtedly, one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible. You know Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for good to them who love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. He says that's undoubtedly one of the most quoted scriptures in the Bible and the most disbelieved. We don't really think God does all things for us for good. We have a suspicion anyway that he doesn't. But the truly righteous are surrendered to God's sovereignty even when it seems dark. One of my favorite hymn writers is William Cooper. If you see his name, sometimes it looks like it's Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's pronounced Cooper. William Cooper was a brilliant English hymn writer of the 18th century. Um, and not just a hymn writer, but the Romantics considered him a great poet. But he was called Mad Cooper, Mad Cooper by his contemporaries because he was emotionally unstable. Imminently gifted, chronically depressed. Several times William Cooper tried to commit suicide. One time when he tried to commit suicide, he was stopped by his pastor in the act. You might know his pastor's name. It was a fellow by the name of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. You wonder when you look at Cooper's life how God could be so providentially unkind to this tortured saint. But you know, William Cooper, like Abraham, he never accused God of unrighteousness. As a matter of fact, he wrote a song about it. It's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Let me read the lyrics real quick. God moves in a mysterious way, and the sovereignty of God is often mysterious. Because you don't know where God's going with this, right? Anybody right now besides me living in that reality, you don't know where God's going with this thing. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, 
He plants his footsteps in the sea. Now that's instability, right? And, and rides upon the storm. That's chaos. That's where God's sovereignty is operating as well. He says, deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Oh, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. And then he concludes with this. He says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Don't judge God by what you see or what you think or what you're imagining. That sounds like Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 to me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. And this is the money line that you may have seen before. He said, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The truly righteous are truly surrendered. Secondly, the truly righteous are submissive, not resistant to the testing of their faith. You know that phrase that we find in Genesis 15 that says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness? That statement is repeated five times in the Bible. Do you think it's important? Abraham believed God and then God had accounted righteousness unto him. God, God gave, made Abraham righteous by faith. Folks, faith matters to God. It matters to God. Hebrews 11.6 says, for without faith, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't matter if you're in church every Sunday. It doesn't matter what kind of service you're doing for God. It, you can be the most fastidious religious person there is, but if you don't trust God, you can't please God. And I'm not talking about trusting when the sun's out. It's trusting him when he tells you to do something ridiculously difficult or in the middle of a storm in your life. Faith matters to God. The strength of your faith matters to God. Why? Because only a tested faith is a certain faith. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, though thou you're, you're trialed with various trials, tested by fire. He said the reason for that is so that the genuineness of your faith that your faith's real, can be proven. And so the truly righteous will submit to divine trials. When young Samuel, we talked about Samuel took the place of Eli because Eli disobeyed God. Eli let his kids run wild. He let his kids do their thing. He did not rebuke them. And God took him out of the ministry and Samuel told him, God's taken you out of ministry. And you know what Eli said? He said, it is the Lord. Let him do what is pleasing to him. The righteous are submitted to the testing of their faith. David, when he was rushed out of town by that very same Absalom, he was dethroned by his son. All of his entourage is going out of Jerusalem. And here comes Shimei, one of Saul's guys. Hated David started cursing David, throwing rocks at the king of Israel. And one of his generals said, Master, let me go take that dead dog's head off. How dare he curse the king? And I love what David said. David said, let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. 
Now think about your difficulty like that. Think about that person that's ruining your reputation. Think about that difficult family member or that difficult coworker or boss or whoever it happens to be who just doesn't like you. Why are they giving you such grief? Well, could you say what David said? Let him alone. Maybe the Lord sent him to curse me. You're willing to have your faith tested by God. Of course, I love what Job said. Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Oh, my friends. And of course, ultimately, we have our dear Lord himself the night before he was crucified. Begged God, let this cup pass from me. But he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will be done. The truly righteous submit to the trial of their faith even when they don't understand it. And let me conclude with one final point. The truly righteous are only saved by the sacrifice of Christ. Now, I mentioned that skeptics decry this command that God gave for Abraham to sacrifice innocent Isaac. But was Isaac really innocent? No. Isaac was a sinner. How can you say that? You can say that because the Bible says that. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no such thing as an innocent person. If Adam was your father and you have his blood going through your veins, you're a sinner too. The Apostle Paul reiterated this in Romans 3 verses, I think it's verse 10. He says, for all have sinned. Actually, that's not what he said. He said, for there's none righteous. No, not one, as if to underscore it. No, not one. Isaac was not innocent. It's also important to note that Isaac's death, if it had been carried out, would have actually saved no one. Ironic, ironically, Isaac knew that. He said, where's the lamb? And indeed, the lamb was yet to come, and God himself would provide it. 1,800 years later, a man wearing camel hair and eating locusts out in the wilderness was drawing a huge crowd. The Bible says everybody in Judea went out to hear him preach. And that man stopped one day, perhaps in the middle of a sermon, I don't know, but he sees someone walking towards him, and he stopped dead cold. And you know what he said? This is John 1:29, by the way. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, when he outgrew his pulpit in London, and he was just a young man, but he would draw 6,000 people every time he stood up to preach. This is the days before these, by the way. And he stood up, he was testing the acoustics in a new metropolitan tabernacle in London, England. And the place is empty, and he stands up and the test of voice to see how far his voice would carry. He said what? He said, John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he said it again, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said it one more time, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And he turned around and walked out. Unbeknownst to Spurgeon, up in the balcony, there was a janitor arranging the hymn books. And when he heard that, he fell on his knees and he prayed that Christ would save his soul. Friends, the power of that truth, that God provides the lamb, and that lamb alone can atone for your sins. William Cooper, who was on the edge of sanity, knew that. And that's why my favorite William Cooper hymn, it's not God works in a mysterious way. That's a good one. This is the best one. There is a fountain. Filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, dear dying lamb, thy precious blood will never lose its power. Till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. This is the Lamb of God for sinners slain. This is the Lamb who interdicted Abraham on Mount Moriah and then on Mount Calvary made sacrifice of himself for the sins of God's people. This is the Lamb who's calling you today to come and have all your sins washed white as snow. This is the God we must trust, folks. The God whose providence is sometimes dark. Let us receive it and embrace it to the glory of God. Amen. Would you please pray with me?